0: to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. It's great to be with you. As Brad mentioned, my name is Logan, and I work as his assistant. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be moving to Serbia in a few months where we'll uh, serve at the Baptist Theological School there. It's such a great privilege to be with you this morning. As Brad mentioned, I've been a member for almost nine years. And um, I never thought I would have the privilege of sharing God's word with you in this context. And I'm so thankful for the privilege uh, to do that. If it wasn't for uh, your love and encouragement uh, throughout the years, the, your investment in me, like, I, I wouldn't be here. And so uh, thank you so much for this privilege of opening up God's word with you this morning. I'll be preaching from the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 7, to chapter 4, verse 13. The Puritan John Owen said, second to the book of Romans, that the, the book of Hebrews is the greatest in all the scriptures. Uh, Hebrews is actually my favorite book, and so I'm happy that, um, to be able to preach from that this morning. While you're turning there, I would like to just go ahead and give you my main point. Uh, while we're returning uh, and to this, and then we'll read the Scripture and pray, and then we'll get started. But it's good to have the, the main point uh, uh, up front. and he, It is this. We should vigilantly focus on Christ and the reward of the rest He offers so that we are not overcome by unbelief and fail to inherit salvation. So let me read, beginning in chapter 3, verse 7, into chapter 4, verse 13. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, as they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart." And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you this morning that we can come into your house to hear your word. We pray that we would not harden our hearts today. We thank you for the the privilege of hearing your voice. Father, there are people who have yet to hear your voice, and so we, we pray that we would not take this for granted. We pray that we would see the eternal realities of what we are doing here this morning. Oh God, we pray that your name alone would alone be glorified. We pray that you would be glorified through the edification of your people. We pray that you would be glorified through the salvation of unbelievers. And we pray that you would be glorified through the proclamation of your word. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have any of you ever lost anything valuable before? On May 22nd, 2010, this very thing happened to Laszlo Hanyecz. When the price of Bitcoin was only pennies to the, to the dollar, he bought two large Papa John's pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin. He wrote on a Bitcoin talk forum, I'll pay 10,000 Bitcoins for a couple of pizzas, like maybe two large ones, so I can have some left over for the next day. I like having leftover pizza to nibble on later. An 18-year-old named Jeremy Sturdivant agreed to the deal and purchased two large Papa John's pizzas for $25. At that point, uh, 10,000 Bitcoin was equivalent to maybe 41 American dollars. Fast forward a few years later, the price of Bitcoin uh, went up to $8,000 a coin, making his purchase of two large pizzas $80 million. (laughs) To put this into perspective, the lavish and epic pizza party that Dabo Sweeney threw for the Clemson fans, where 30,000 people came, cost roughly $100,000. So Dabo Sweeney would have had to celebrate for 800 days straight at that rate to make up for the two large pizzas that, that Laszlo bought. The book of Hebrews warns us against making similar transactions. Not against, you know, being ripped off at a pizza restaurant, but of trading something valuable for something Uh, that will one day pass away we see the consequences of trading Christ for anything in this world is much more grave much more consequential than any deal that Laszlo made himself we see that the consequences are cosmically worse and the the results are more tragic and eternal because what we lose is not just eighty million dollars or even all the wealth of the world we stand to lose our souls and the book of Hebrews is written to keep us from losing our souls. The book of Hebrews is written, uh, it says in the book of uh, chapter 13, verse 22, as a word of exhortation, to encourage us to persevere on till the end. And that's why we find throughout the book of Hebrews so many warnings punctuated throughout rich theological reflection. Hebrews 3, 7 to four thirteen is the uh, continuation of the comparison that the author began in chapter 3, verse 1. In chapter 3, verse 1 to uh, verse 6, the author is comparing Christ to Moses. This comparison is a comparison that we find throughout the New Testament. Um, Christ himself uh, compares his work to an exodus, for example, in chapter 9, uh, verse 31 of Luke. And the reason why these, these comparisons between Moses and Christ are so prevalent is because Moses was held among the Jews to be uh, one of the most significant figures of Judaism. I would like to quote uh, uh, a piece of literature that is from the time of the intertestamental period. It's, uh, it's called The Assumption of Moses. It's a pseudepigraphal work. It's a work that was uh, about Moses, but obviously wasn't written by, Mo- by Moses because it was written thousands of years later. But here's a, a, a perception of how the Jews viewed Moses at this time. They said, Moses, that sacred spirit, worthy of the Lord, manifold and incomprehensible, master of leaders, faithful in all things, the divine prophet for the whole earth, the perfect teacher in the world. We see that even though Moses was held by such high regard among the Jews, that Christ himself was much more glorious. In chapter 3 of Hebrews, we see that that Christ is superior to Moses on the basis of two things. The first is that Moses was simply a servant in God's house, and and Christ was a son. We see that, that Moses was simply a creature, but Christ was the creator. Moses, as great as he he is, even though he receives the highest approbation of of his peers among men, he himself was unable to enter the promised land. But Christ is greater. We see that Christ compares his death to an exodus. Whereas Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, he rescued them from the tyranny of Pharaoh, a political ruler. Christ's exodus delivers his people from the wrath of God. He brings them into a promised land that is eternal and imperishable, whereas Moses only led his people into the land of Canaan. Paul himself also speaks of the importance of the Exodus in many places, but one place in particular I think is important for the passage that we are studying today is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, where Paul says this, Now these things took place as an examples for us that we may not desire evil, as they did. This brings us to chapter 3, verse 7 to 14, which as I've mentioned is a continuation from his, his comparison of, in the first six verses. You'll notice that seven, verses 7 to 11 are a quotation from Psalm 95, which is itself a reflection on Exodus 17 and Numbers chapter 14. And you might have noticed that there's a little bit of a difference in this quotation we find here in Hebrews than the version that Tyler read this morning in the call to worship and the reason why is simply is this is that the Psalms uh, in the ESV Bible are translated from the Hebrew. The, the, the author of Hebrews quoted from a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures which gives us a different translation in some uh, areas. So for example whereas we find the two geographical place names uh, Meribah and Massah, here we find their translation of those terms into Greek we find uh, that the words rebellion and Meribah. So that's essentially what's going on. That it's basically, it's based off a translation rather than the Hebrew text. But Psalm 95, as you might have noticed this morning too, can be divided into two parts. And they seem almost at first glance incongruous. Why does the author switch from praise to a warning? And this has led some people to speculate that perhaps these were initially separate compositions that were later added together. However, uh, scholars have like you know demonstrated quite well actually that there is a unity both stylistically and thematically in the Psalm. But we don't find the first part of the Psalm quoted here in Hebrews chapter three. We find only the latter part, the warning, which we'll turn our attention to now. The psalm is a warning not to harden our heart. We find that there in verse eight. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So what is it to harden our hearts? Really, to harden our hearts is to become stubborn or recalcitrant or resistant to the truth of God's word. It's to adopt the attitude of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus when he asked, Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And this attitude is contrasted with humility or responsiveness to God's word, a willingness to obey. To put this into the words of scripture, stubbornness, I think, is characterized really well in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 16, verse 12, where we find this. And because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. Perhaps there's no other verse in Scripture that characterizes what it is to harden your hearts. But this latter part of the psalm is a reflection on the wilderness wanderings that followed the Exodus. The Israelites uh, are being compared typologically uh, to the people of God in the New Testament. And what that means is that there is a, a correspondence between the events that happened to the Israelites... And the events that uh, the we, as God's people now, after the time of, of Christ, experience. So it's not an allegorical reading. He sees legitimate uh, uh, similarities in actual events that happen in flesh and blood that he's making this uh, comparison to. And so uh, the people of, of Israel experienced a miraculous deliverance from Egypt. They nevertheless questioned God and doubted his provision for them and his presence among them. And so now we find ourselves... Uh, after the death and resurrection of Christ, um, some of us who have genuinely been born again have actually experienced this. Others perhaps bear the name of Christian, but only nominally. They, they actually haven't actually tasted the Lord and, and been born again. And so this is why this, this warning about what happened to the people of, of Israel, their hardening of the hearts is so relevant and pertinent for us this morning. So the first passage of scripture that we need to to read very briefly and understand is Exodus 17, 1-7. This is where we first find the terms Meribah and Massah. We see there that the people quarreled with Moses about water, and this actually was not the first occurrence where they they quarreled with Moses about water. They also doubted God's presence among them, even though it was visibly manifest. We, We know that from the book of Exodus, chapter 13, verse 22, where we find this. The pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. They only had to open their eyes to see the presence of the Lord among them. But their hearts were so hard, they said, is God among us? And we see that place are called Massah and Meribah because Massah is testing. They tested the Lord through their disobedience. They also quarreled with him and they quarreled with his servant, Moses. And so we have two names for the same place. It's similar to uh, in India. Mumbai is also called Bombay. And, there, and the idea that uh, they, they named these places on the basis of the, what happened there is very familiar throughout the times of the Bible. That We find sometimes covenants are made at certain locations and those uh, uh, are, are named after those treaties that are made there. It, it's kind of like if, if we were to take our daughter on a long road trip, for example, and she was complaining the whole time. Are we there yet? Can we stop and get a snack? Can we go to the bathroom? And, and on and on and on as she goes. And then finally I become so frustrated that I decide to name the place where my frustration boils over, Discontent. And, and we'll forever remember that location. That's kind of what we have here in uh, the book of Exodus. The second uh, passage of Scripture comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 14. Numbers 14 is the people's response to the, the spies' uh, uh, description of the land, of Canaan, the promised land. The spies in Numbers 13 were sent out, and they spent 40 days in the land, uh, examining everything. And they, they noted that it was actually a very good land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. However, there was a, a big problem, and I, I don't use that lightly, because there were big people who lived there. Uh, the Amim the formerly lived there, a people great in many, and tall as the Anakim, as we find in De, uh, Deuteronomy 2.10. So, These people who lived in the land were the descendants of Anak. And every time we find these people throughout the Bible, they're always noted for their large physical stature. And so the people began to fear, like, can we actually go in and conquer the land? Can we defeat these people? And it's a foolish kind of uh, response because not too long before, they recognized that and they experienced God's miraculous deliverance for them out of Egypt. But the people, it said in Numbers 14, 11, they despise God and they do not believe him. Or in Numbers chapter 14, verses 2 to 4, they say that Egypt is better. They would rather stay in the land of Egypt than go into the promised land out of fear that these people would defeat them as they go in. And the Lord in his wrath, in uh, verses 21 to 23, swears that they will never enter the land. They will never enter the rest that he promised them. So this leads us, after going through this background, this leads us to this, uh, the warning that we find, really, throughout uh, this whole passage of Scripture. And the warning is this. If you do not hold your orig- original confidence firm to the end, you will not enter God's rest. And that might seem like a hard statement, because I think we, perhaps uh, you, you may have heard that if you pray a prayer, that if, if, you, if you are saved, you will always be saved. And while there is some theological truth to that claim, it needs to be nuanced and explained from the text of Scripture. And we will get there, Lord willing. But before we do that, I want to talk about these warnings that we find here in the book of Hebrews. And specifically, what I want to talk about are the causes of unbelief. Because we see the problem is not so much the behavior that limits the people from coming into God's rest. As we find in chapter 3, verse 19, the problem is unbelief. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. We see that they always go astray in their hearts in verse 10. We see in verse 12 that we should take care lest there be in an interview of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The problem is not outside of them or outside of us. The problem is inside. So the first thing that can lead us to fall away from God are the temptations of Satan. Satan tempts us to unbelief in a a myriad of ways. He tempts us to doubt God's promises. He tempts us to doubt the reality of the heavenly world. He tempts us to think that sin is more satisfying than holiness. He tempts us, in short, to value time to eternity, to place more value on the things of this world than the world to come. The next thing that causes unbelief is sin. So though unbelief itself is sin, sin also causes unbelief. Perhaps you realize it in your own life. Maybe you began to stray away from the Lord and your, your heart became hardened towards the things of God. But and maybe the Lord miraculously rescued you from that and reclaimed you and put you back on the right path. But sin itself causes unbelief. We see this even in John chapter 5, verse 44, where Jesus says that they cannot believe in him because they love the glory of man rather than the glory that comes from God. We find in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, that... The, uh, the passions of our flesh wage war against our soul. We see in chapter 12, verse 16 and 17, this, that Esau placed more value on a perishable bowl of soup than his birthright. It says this, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The Puritan George Swinnick says this about sin. But sin goeth in a disguise, and thence is welcome. Like Judas, it kisseth and kills. Like Joab, it salutes and slays. Sin never shows you its true colors, but the end consequence is the destruction of your soul. Another possible uh, a thing to lead you to fall away from God is tribulation or persecution. And this was the peculiar temptation of the Hebrews themselves. They were tempted to to abandon Christ and go back to Judaism in order to avoid persecution. They thought that if only we could go back to uh, Judaism and follow the customs of the law, then we would avoid the persecution that that, that they're giving us. We find in chapter 10, verse 32 to 34, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. We see that turning away from Christ to avoid persecution is akin to taking a penny now when you could have all the riches of the world in a minute. We see that this life is a vapor. We're passing away so quickly, and that in order to avoid persecution, for just to preserve your life for a few more decades, is the foolish transaction in Fox's Book of Martyr, he tells stories sometimes of people who would denounce Christ while they're suffering persecutions. And in the midst of their suffering, they die in that instant. And the last life, in their last act of their life is to, to denounce and reject their Lord. Ignatius, who was a martyr, didn't have the same response. Ignatius said, Let tribulation come. Now I begin to be now I begin to be a disciple. He recognized, like Paul does in Second Corinthians chapter four, verse 17 and 18, "For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the, that are un- that, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Whereas Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse 18, "For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us." Brothers and sisters, We need to reclaim an eternal perspective on this world. We are passing through. We do not know when our last breath will be. And to turn away from Christ to gain a few more years or maybe even a few more milliseconds is foolish. We see also that the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches can lead us to fall away from Christ. We must beware of seeking satisfaction in this world, which was the very attitude of the Israelites who wanted to go back to Egypt because they found it to be very nice. They said in Numbers 14.3, Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? There was food there. There was everything that they desired. But we see that this attitude should be contrasted with the attitude of Moses, who in Hebrews 11 we find this, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. David Livingston, the 19th century missionary to Africa, said this, It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. And Christ himself says this in Luke twelve thirty four: For where your treasure is, there your heart be, will be also. Now let's look at the consequences of unbelief. The first consequence of unbelief is disobedience. All disobedience is the consequence of unbelief. Even the dis- uh, disobedience of Christians. We, when, we fought, when we sin against God, it's because of some vestige of unbelief in our hearts that leads us to think that sin will be more satisfying than what God has promised us. But we see that the, the, the greater danger and consequence of unbelief is the inability to enter God's rest. We see that Israelites were unable to enter into the land of Canaan because of their sin, but we stand to lose something far more significant. We stand to lose heaven. So what does this mean? Does this mean that you can at one point be counted among God's people, be saved at this moment, and the next moment lose your salvation? No, the Bible does not teach that, and the author of Hebrews does not teach that either. What it does teach is that genuine conversion, to actually be born again, will necessarily result in you persevering until the end. There, there is no category of Christian who can simply accept Christ as Savior and not as Lord. This bifurcation, this dichotomy, where some people want to say you can accept Christ for His forgiveness but not follow Him with your life, is unbiblical. Christ Himself never makes this distinction in the Gospels. We see none of the authors of the, the Scripture make this type of distinction between Christ. The idea of Christ... Uh, doing that is, is foolishness. Christ did not die for you to live out your vain pleasures. Christ died so that you would die to yourself and become like him. So what what it means then is that if you do not actually persevere till the end, is that you are never actually converted. Maybe this would look like 1 John 2, 19, that uh, you went out from us, but they were never once from us. They, you might have a, an open rebellion against God. Perhaps it could look like you secretly deceiving yourself and others until you die. And then you stand before God in the Matthew 7 way. And he says to you, depart from me for I never knew you. The author of Hebrews himself warns us against a trifling with God because he is omniscient. We see in chapter 4 verse 13 that all are naked and exposed to the eyes of God. It says in the book of, of, of Job chapter 26 that even Sheol itself is open before the eyes of the Lord. In Proverbs 15, we see that, that the Lord can see into the, the eyes, or his, his eyes behold even the, our, our hearts are opened before him. In First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, we find where uh, he, the Lord says, he, does, he sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward, but God looks on the inside. Thomas Brooks, who incidentally was Charles Spurgeon's favorite Puritan, has this to say about God's omniscience. I have read of two godly men who took contrary courses with two harlots whom they desired to reclaim from their wicked course of life. One of the men told one of the women that he was desirous to enjoy her company in secret. After she had brought him into a private room and locked the door, he told her, All your bars and bolts cannot keep God out. The other godly man asked the other harlot to be unchaste with him openly in the streets, which she rejected as an insane request. He then told her it was better to do it before the eyes of a crowd Than before the eyes of the all seeing God. Friends, there is nowhere that we can go where God is not. We can ascend into heaven and the Lord is there. We can even descend into the depths of the earth and the Lord is there as well. There is no darkness so dark that the Lord does not see. There is nowhere we can flee from his presence. As Ambrose, the the Bishop of Milan, who was instrumental in the conversion of, of Augustine, said, you cannot even flee from the presence of the Son who is merely the Lord's servant. And the Lord himself has eyes 10,000 times brighter than the Son. How should you uh, think that you could escape from him? So friends, you may be able to deceive others in this room or even deceive yourself, but none of you can deceive God. And each of us will one day give an account to God, as it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. This leads us to see the importance of community. The author says in chapter 3, verse 1, in the NIV translation, which I'm reading from now, that we should fix our thoughts on Jesus. I feel it's a stronger and more evocative translation than what we find in the ESV, where it's only considered Jesus. But, But to fix our minds on Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 13, we find, "...but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." In chapter 12, verse 15, we find it, "...see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble." and by it many become defiled. In chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In chapter 10, verse 24 to 25, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We see all throughout this letter that this author is prioritizing biblical community. We see that church membership isn't the construct of 21st century America. Church membership is not something that we do simply so we can report a certain uh, amount of people to the Southern Baptist Convention. That's foolishness. We, 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 we don't care about that. What we care about is, is biblical discipleship, the conformity to Christ. Much better is a congregation of three people who are eager to follow after the Lord than a congregation of thousands and thousands who do not know him. See, the, the, the thing is, it's not numbers that matter. It's the depth of our knowledge of God. Calvin, commenting on this passage, says this. He would have us then to stimulate one another by mutual exhortations, so that Satan may not creep into our hearts and by his fallacies draw us away from God. And this is a way of speaking that ought to be especially observed, for we fall not immediately by the first assault into this madness of striving against God, but Satan by degrees accosts us artfully by indirect means, Until he holds us ensnared in his delusions, then indeed being blinded, we break forth into open rebellion. Friends, we need to exhort one another every day, to encourage one another to persevere, because left to our own devices, we are easy prey for Satan. We find in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone whom he might devour. None of us on our own are are capable of withstanding all of his devices on our own. That's why we need biblical community, and that's why we should take heed against superficial church involvement and beware of anything that would lead us away from being involved at the church. We, know that we see this in chapter 10, of, uh, verse 28 to 31 of Hebrews. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. See, the the thing is, is that the people in the Old Testament were punished for their sins. But now that we live in this new time where where Christ has been manifested and that Christ reigns on His throne, to rebel against Christ means certain judgment. It means certain punishment. Because if if they were punished in the Old Testament, how much more will we be punished now if we turn away from God? And this shows us the futility of prioritizing things outside of the church. Friends, if, 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 if your child sports calls you to be absent from the body of Christ on a regular basis, what good is that? What good is it if your child wins a sports scholarship but you go to hell? Friends, you will find no consolation that your kid played football with Nick Saban if you're spending eternity in hell. Or what good is it if you are regularly absent from the body of Christ to spend your time on vacation and seeking comfort and pleasure? Friends, that will bring you no comfort when you are in eternal anguish in hell. Friends, I'm speaking hard because these are hard realities and these are biblical truths. We need to hear these things over and over again because we have the tendency to harden our hearts to become dull of hearing. And the danger is that we might not actually break into open rebellion, but we could have something like Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, where we simply drift away from God into eternal destruction. Unrealized, uh, 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 unaware to us that we have drifted so far away from God only to wake up and find ourselves separated eternally, from eternal life. So friends, maybe you're here this morning and you realize that you're not living for God. What is the answer for you? What is the, how can you rectify this situation? Is it simply to prioritize coming to church more? Say, I'll come every Sunday, I'll come every Wednesday, I'll join a prayer group, a community group, I'll do evangelism. No, friends. You can do all that and still not know the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews gives us the answer to how to solve this problem. The way to be made right with God, the way to to have this wandering heart restored to focus on God, is through God himself. We see that Christ himself died to fix this problem that we have. We all have this problem. I have it. The pastors have it. Every member of this church has it. And if you're not a member, you're simply visiting, you yourself has it. It's a universal human problem, and that problem is sin. Sin causes us to turn away from God. Sin causes us to go our own way, to think that we are wiser than God, to prize the things that God says are abhorrent, to love evil and to hate good. But we see that God himself has made a way to rectify the situation, and he's done it in a miraculous way that brings him all the glory, because he has done it through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we find throughout the book of Hebrews that Christ became a man, in order to bear God's wrath for our sins. In chapter 2, verse 17, he actually uses this word propitiation. Propitiation is a a word that scholars have debated about for, for many decades. But the idea behind propitiation is that it is one party bearing the wrath that turns that wrath into favor. So two parties are at odds. Somebody steps in and acts as an intermediary, bears the wrath... And then reconciles the parties, and this is precisely what Christ has done for us on the cross. God's sin was burning hot against or God's uh, anger was burning hot hot against our sin. But in His mercy and His kindness, He gave His Son Jesus Christ to bear the penalty that each of us deserved. In Christ, because He was a man and was tempted, He says in chapter five, verse two, that He can deal gently and. Uh, deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he uh, uh, was a, a high priest and he knows that the temptations that we suffered. In chapter 7, verse 25, we find this, that consequently he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for, for them. In chapter 9, verse 13 to 14, we find this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, the way to be made right with God is through faith in Christ. Christ's death has secured eternal salvation for any who would come. Perhaps you came here this morning under God's condemnation, but you can leave here justified. Your eternity changed forever forever by a simple act of faith in their Savior. Christ has done that for all people. There is no one here today who is too far gone from God's mercy. No one can out the mercy of God. No sin is too black where the blood of Christ cannot wash it out. No one is, is too sinful where they cannot be made right. I think about my own life. Ten years ago, I was not converted. Here I am, a former blasphemer, made right with God and able to declare the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. And friends, that is the testimony of, of each of us. If you are in Christ, you are at one point separated from God. But God rescued you. We give him all the glory for that. Well, this warning leads us now to the promise. The promise is this, that a rest remains for those who persevere to the end. This rest is, is not offered indiscriminately to all. It's offered to those who persevere to the end. As it says in chapter 12, verse 14 of the book of Hebrews, that there is a, a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So despite your profession, if your life is not matched that profession, it, it doesn't matter. You can be a member of this church and go to hell. But it, there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord, a holiness which each of us should strive after, not in our own strength, but in the strength that God supplies, as it says in chapter 13, verses 20 to 22 of Hebrews. But we must strive to focus on eternity. We must strive to enter this rest, as it says in chapter 4, verse 11 of this book. We must adopt the attitude of Jonathan Edwards, who used to pray, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. We need the Lord to give us that, because otherwise we'll be uh, uh, captivated by the things of this world. And this is the, the mindset of Hebrews chapter 11. We see in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." So we are all, as Christians, striving for God's rest. So what is God's rest? God's rest, ultimately, is the consummation of our salvation when we will be in his presence eternally. However, we have a foretaste of this rest now in this life. Christ himself says in the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 28 to 29, that he will give rest to all who come to him, that he will give rest to our souls. So there is actually the, the beginning of the rest now but it's uh, not going to be fully realized until we die and enter into Christ's presence. We realize that is the case uh, from a couple passages of Scripture. From the passages that we are studying, for example, in chapter 4, verse 10, we find this. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the idea is not that you rest from your, your works uh, in, in terms of like believing in Christ for salvation. What it means is that you rest from your works in the same way that Christ, or that God rested from the creation of the world as we see as the author quotes in chapter 4 from Genesis chapter 2. We also see uh, a relevant passage in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verse 13, where we find this. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. The rest is ultimately eternal life with God. This was foreshadowed in the Old Testament by the land of Canaan. But we know that that rest was not ultimate because we see that Joshua, if, in verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there is a rest that is distinct from this rest on this earth. It's future oriented. That's why the author can say that we need to strive to enter into God's rest. So the key idea from this then is that there is a rest that remains. That there is a hope of salvation if we persevere till the end. That we must not trifle with God. That we must not throw away His grace or disregard it or trample upon the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. But we must prioritize the things that God has called us to prioritize, namely His Son. And we see that we are able to persevere in this life of faith, not on the basis of our own work. We, We don't cause ourselves to persevere. We can see this in many different places of Scripture, but just to go again to the author of Hebrews, and perhaps you've noticed that I've quoted a lot from Hebrews, because I want you to, to get a taste of, of the mindset of this author. And, and I would commend just to, to regularly come back to this book because he views the world in a way that we are not apt to, to view the world. But here's how he says that we're able to persevere in this life of faith. In verse uh, chapter 13, verse 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace... Who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great Shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we see that the author of Hebrews thinks that we are able to persevere through God's work in us. This is. Uh, uh, Complementary to the idea that we find in the book of Jude. That that God himself will cause us to persevere to the very end. And present us before his throne with great joy and boasting in his goodness. So now as we come to the close. um, How how does this even affect what we're about to do now at the Lord's table? Well I think Christ even uh, when he was telling his disciples about. His death and its, its ramifications, what it means for them. He, he, he said that, obviously, that His death secured salvation for them. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we, we look back at what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. We realize that Christ has shed His blood, that we would be forgiven of sins and made right with God eternally. But when we come to the Lord's table, Christ, I think, would also have us look, look ahead. To look ahead to what we will one day experience in full. He says this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In other words, the consummation of our salvation. We find in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 6, six to 9, what I think Christ is talking about here. It says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the, Lo- the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true words of God. This is what Christ was pointing to that one day that we will be able to join around Him and and, and celebrate what He has accomplished for us, that we will be able to one day be free of this body of death, these sinful desires that even permeate our our hearts now, even after our our regeneration. We will one day be free from sin and in God's presence forever. It's a a world of, of love. It's a world where everything has been rectified. Everything wrong in this world has been made right in that one. And it's a world that we should set our hope on. And the only way that we will make it into that world is through persevering faith in the Son of, Christ, uh, Son of God, Jesus Christ. Salvation is only in Him. He alone causes us to persevere. I'm about to pray, but before I do that, I would like to ask you all to stand uh, with, with me. Um, if... Uh, The ushers, you can come on down uh, to get ready to serve the Lord's table. Uh, If you are um, a Christian, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, if you are boasting uh, in the hope of of God, if you're continuing in your confidence, we invite you to come to the Lord's table today. Christ offers this meal to us to sustain our faith, to, to give us a greater glimpse of His glory and His love for us, to encourage us to persevere on until the very end. If you know yourself not to be a believer, if you're not persevering, if you're not boasting in Christ, we would ask that you would not come to the table. What good is it to participate in this earthly meal if you miss out on its heavenly counterpart? And so we pray that you would prepare your hearts for this table. Brad, uh, once you receive the elements, Brad will lead us in taking the Lord's Supper. And uh, let's pray. Father, we come to you today so thankful for giving us your word Thank you that you have not left us without the good news of salvation. We pray that if anyone is here in this room who does not yet know you, that you would be gracious to them, that you would show them their need for you. And we pray, Lord, that these words would not fall on deaf ears, that we would not harden our hearts, but that we would be receptive to it. We pray that we would see that we are sojourners and pilgrims on this earth, that we are passing through to our true inheritance, that our citizenship is in heaven, that we have been born again to a living hope. Father, help us not to set our hearts back to, go, to return to Egypt. We pray that you would cause us to persevere to the end. Use us as means of grace in each other's lives to cause us to persevere. We ask this all in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.